Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Luke chapter 9. Join with me now as I ask for the Lord's help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Would you be pleased to illumine your word so that we could see Jesus? Speak, O Lord. Your people are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The internet is uh, a good place to find answers to trivial questions. And I had a trivial question the other day. Uh, why are those short movie clips that should be called previews all the time called trailers? Have you ever wondered that? Why are previews called trailers? It was a mystery to me. And I, I, I looked up why they're called trailers. I learned that the use of trailers goes back to 1913 when the motion picture industry was just getting going, when the first trailers weren't shown before the feature film, rather after the film. In other words, they were trailing the film. Even though they followed the feature film, uh, they were in reality previews. Now, after previews or trailers for several movies are over, there's this announcement, right? And now for our feature presentation. The previews are done. The movie that you came to see is, is ready to begin. Now, with movie previews or trailers, you actually may not end up seeing the actual movie that's featured. Our, our text provides a preview of coming attractions, an attraction so massive that no one, and I mean no one, will miss it. Luke is writing his gospel to provide certainty as to the person and work of Jesus, not certainty on everything, but certainty on who Jesus is what Jesus came to do. That's his purpose for his first reader, Theophilus. It's his purpose for those of us who read today. Last week, when we were looking in Luke 9, 18 through 27, Christian Discipleship 101, uh, we saw the Christ of discipleship. He is the promised Messiah. He is the suffering servant. We thought about the cost of discipleship, the call of Jesus to give up, to take up, and to keep up. And with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus' call to follow him, we've reached the turning point of Luke's gospel. It is a continental divide where the water now flows in one direction the story, the narrative is going to flow to Jerusalem, to the death of Jesus on the cross. The road ahead is one of suffering and death. 
Join with me now as I read verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he, that is Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he was, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything. Of what they had seen. This account follows Jesus' statement in verse 27 that truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It's the, the transfiguration is the most immediate reference, although there are other references to that statement of Jesus. Now, many, if not most, all of the events in the life of Jesus have been portrayed in works of art. Think about his birth, his baptism, his teaching, his miracles, his praying, his last supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. But what about the transfiguration? How can this event even be portrayed? Because there's nothing like the transfiguration anywhere in the Bible. In Jewish literature or in the religious literature of the Greco-Roman world, it is utterly unique. No wonder it's the momentary revealing of the divine glory of Jesus Christ during the time of his earthly ministry. It's a glimpse of his divine nature and his coming exaltation in the days of his humiliation. Now, before this, there have been several indirect hints at his divinity. Remember the response when Jesus told the man his sins were forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Do you remember when he calmed the storm at sea? The disciples are like, who is this? When he raised the dead. Who raises the dead? Here. With the transfiguration, there is nothing indirect. This is going through the front door. This is the divine glory that shines from Jesus. And he is distinguished from any and every other man who has ever lived. The transfiguration appears in all three synoptic gospels. Matthew 17, Mark 9. Well, let's explore Luke's account as we consider the what the why and the so what of the transfiguration. First, the what of the transfiguration. Well, let's set the context. 
Where is Jesus and these three apostles? Well, heading up on a mountain, an unknown mountain. Some think Mount Tabor, some think Mount Hermon. We really don't know which mountain it is, and that's why it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. I think that's accurate. Because remember, it's recalling Mount Sinai where Moses beheld the glory of God. Now, they're headed up the mountain to do something interesting, to pray, to pray. That's not what Matthew says. That's not what Mark says. It's what Luke says. So if you're paying attention to Luke, you'll see often prayer in the life of Jesus. And in his second volume, Acts, you'll see prayer in the life of the church. Jesus took them with him to pray. You know, you get to know people by praying together with them as people share their hearts. Jesus was sharing his heart. And we see that in John as the disciples overhear Jesus's conversations with his father. In Luke, Jesus prays predominantly. In Acts, the church prays. It happens after prayer. It happens during prayer. Well, let's ask a series of four questions. What is happening to Jesus? Well, He's transfigured. Uh, Matthew and Mark write, he was transfigured before them. Luke doesn't use the word, but he nonetheless describes the change. It's a glorious alteration in the appearance and qualities of Jesus's body. What changed? Jesus's whole being, in particular, his face. Illumination comes from within Jesus. Divine glory is not a reflection as it was with Moses, but rather it's coming from him. It's a display of the eternal and essential glory of the Son of God, which he had with the Father before the creation of the world, as we read in John 17. And his clothing, we read, becomes dazzling white. Interestingly, uh, the New Testament pays attention not to the appearance of Jesus, but rather to the clothing of Jesus. Recall Jesus as an infant. Recall Jesus going to the cross. Recall Jesus leaving the tomb, clothing. What these three apostles are being shown is that Jesus is much more than the Messiah that they had imagined. It still interests me when I look out the, uh, the side view mirror on the car. What does it say? Objects are closer than they appear, right? Well, Jesus is much bigger than he appears. Because we are are too small. Our minds are far too limited. Our natures are too confined really to grasp what is going on here. The glory and majesty of God. The finite really cannot fully and completely comprehend the infinite. So that's what's happening to Jesus. He is transfigured. Well, what are Moses and Elijah doing there? The answer to that question is they're talking with Jesus. Um, Here we're being shown that there is a complete unity between Old Testament and New Testament concerning redemption. You see, you can say Moses represents the law and Elijah as the first of the classical prophets. He represents the prophets. 
In the Old Testament, only Moses and Elijah spoke with God on the mountain, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb. The presence of Moses and Elijah manifestly indicates that Jesus indeed is the fulfillment of the very purpose of God for the world that had been revealed over the successive stages in the history of Israel. God is showing the disciples that the entirety of the Old Testament was bearing witness to Jesus and that he is far greater than either Moses or Elijah. Jesus is being encouraged by these two Old Testament witnesses. And our third question, what is Peter talking about? What's the answer? He doesn't know. Luke lets us know that Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. He spoke without thinking. Peter doesn't yet understand Jesus. He calls him master, but he he still sees Jesus as just a man. And, And when Peter suggests that three tents be set up, he wants to preserve this remarkable moment and continue to enjoy this glorious thing that was happening. In Mark, you may recall, Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter wanted the crown for Jesus, not suffering and death and the cross. But Jesus cannot stay on the mountain. He has to go down into the valley in order to climb the hill of Calvary to take the cross and die for sinners. It is good. Peter is correct. It is good, but it cannot last, at least for now. One commentator says this, about Peter not knowing what he was talking about. He says this, the sheer oddity of this bumbling suggestion is itself strong evidence of the story's basic truth. Nobody inventing a tale like this would make up such a comic moment, lowering the tone of the occasion in such a manner. Now it's easy for us in hindsight to what criticize Peter for what he did. But you know what? Peter was acting in good faith. Peter had good intentions. He was acting in good faith toward Jesus. And here's our fourth and final question in this section. Well, what does God say? Well, he issues a statement and he gives a command. There's an indicative and an imperative And a voice came out of the clouds saying in verse uh, 35, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The cloud, it's a symbol of God's presence and glory. It both reveals and it conceals. God interrupts Peter and says, basically, be quiet and listen. In the Navy, on our ship, we had the 1MC. It was a general announcing system. And you often heard this, now hear this. Now hear this. On the Air Force flight line, you had the giant voice, a voice so booming and loud that it could overcome jet engine noise at times. What God is saying in this indicative and this imperative is reflecting the logic of the gospel. God rescues his people out of Egypt. He redeems them. Then he says, this is how you live for me. 
It's the indicative that precedes the imperative. It's the indicative that gives the ability for the imperative. This is my son, the Messiah. This is my chosen one, the servant. If you look up Isaiah 41, this is my servant, my chosen one. God is speaking to the apostles, but he's also speaking to Jesus. Jesus was the recipient at the time of his baptism. Here, it's the disciples. And there's a command. Listen, listen to all his words, but in particular, the new instruction that he's given, giving the necessity of his suffering and their participation in his humiliation. Disciples don't want to necessarily hear this. It's easy, isn't it, for all of us to listen to what we want to hear. However, we need to be told to listen. Listen to Jesus. Notice just the focus. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus is the sole bearer of God's new revelation to be disclosed at the cross and empty tomb. The emphasis is on listening to Jesus He must be allowed to interpret his messianic mission. It is not enough to just confess Jesus as Christ. They must listen to his words about his death and resurrection. Now, in asking these four questions, it helps us understand to a degree what's going on. However, we can't stop with the what. We also need to look at the why of the transfiguration. The why. Of the transfiguration. Uh, the first has to do with the ministry of Jesus. It's to endorse his ministry, to confirm his ministry, to certify his ministry. In particular, this advanced revelation of Jesus' glory endorses what he's going to say about the cross. It's to confirming to the apostles the true identity of Jesus as God's Son. It's to give a fresh glimpse of unsurpassable glory, unimaginable majesty, dignity, transcendence, and otherness. The gospel writers, Luke included, are all straining to describe this event. How do you describe the indescribable? How do you put in words what is truly awesome? The disciples are slow to understand. You see, they all have a grid for how God's salvation will work and Jesus must break through that grid so they can truly hear what he is saying. It's an amazing, it's literally a dazzling effort to break through their grid. To believe and to follow Jesus, we all must be good listeners. Jesus has authority over us, not only what we do, but also what we think and believe. We must submit our thoughts to Jesus. And it's one thing to agree on principle that God's word is authoritative, but we must patiently study and listen to his teaching, always assuming that we are not getting it. And when I was thinking about that, um, it's easy to come to this from above and find in it what we want to find. It's much harder to come to this from below where we really do sing, speak, O Lord, teach me, show me. On our best days, we still don't get it. 
We sang, teach me true humility, right? We, we, we don't get it. And the second thing has to do with the followers of Jesus, to encourage them, to assure them, to reassure them, to, to, for them to know that Jesus is not simply a man, he's divine, he is the God-man. To know the disciples' sight of Jesus' glory shows us not only that he is God himself, but he is the way to approach the unapproachable glory of God. Moses, as you know, wanted to see the glory of God, but God refused because of sinful humans couldn't bear the presence of a holy God. But Jesus is the new tabernacle where God and man meet. Most people, your neighbors, your co-workers, most people believe that there's a God behind the universe. But there also is some kind of gap or chasm of some kind that cuts us off from that God, whoever he or she or it is. And therefore, many religions have temples in which the presence of God was mediated. But here on the Mount of Transfiguration, we learn not only that Jesus is God on the other side of the gap, he is the bridge over the gap. What is this? What, why is the transfiguration here? To reassure the disciples and the readers and to help them and help us to prepare for the difficult days ahead. You see, Jesus didn't square or line up with their ideas of greatness and glory, but it is a powerful demonstration that despite outward appearances, the person and work of Jesus is glorious. Over and over, the apostles, the disciples, found themselves in circumstances in which the Lord, their Lord and his cause, looked like it was utterly defeated. And yet, a brief lifting of the veil of, as it were, ordinariness, to give a glimpse of the incredible power and glory underneath all of the suffering and service, including death. What they were getting was a preview of coming attractions. Well, we've spent a few minutes thinking about both the what and the why of the transfiguration. So what? Some may say. So what? You may say. Does it really matter? Do do these verses really matter to life in 2024? Your life? My life? Yes. Yes. And let's consider a few reasons why it matters as we look at the so what of the transfiguration. First, it's a beautiful picture of biblical revelation. Here's the scene. Jesus is standing between the prophets and the apostles. Have any of you all been to the flood wall in Covington and seen the murals? It's really a neat display of the history of our area. And there's this one mural entitled The Meeting at the Point. It portrays the gathering by Brigadier General George Rogers Clark, Simon Kenton, Daniel Boone, and Benjamin Logan at the point overlooking the mouth of the Licking River on November 1st, 1782. Well, here's our mural. 
Here's our picture. Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, the prophet, Peter, the Pentecost preacher, James, the apostle and first martyr, John, the gospel writer, and as that old gospel song said, the the revelator, right? The writer of Revelation. The first and the last human author of the Bible is in one place along with the Bible's supreme subject. Peter, James, and John are witnesses both to the glory, the transfiguration, and they will be witnesses to the agony of Gethsemane. The church, the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. So, it's first a beautiful picture of biblical revelation. Second, it's a brief stop on the transforming journey of the apostles. John would write later in his gospel of having seen the divine glory. Listen to what John 1:14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. John is recalling the transfiguration. But it's also Peter. And we read in 2 Peter chapter 2. Listen to verse, excuse me, 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Listen to what Peter says. Remember the guy who didn't know what he was talking about? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Of this event, Sinclair Ferguson writes, then, that is the apostles, would understand that the power of God would be made known through the weakness of the cross and the glory of Christ made known only through his shame. The power and the glory on the mountain and the, the, the weakness and shame of the cross. It's a beautiful picture of biblical revelation. It's a brief stop on the transforming journey of the apostles. And third, it's an ironclad guarantee of things to come. It's not only a preview of coming attractions, but it's a guarantee that the final picture will be shown. You see, what the disciples witness is a guarantee of even greater glory to come. This guarantee is a remedy to my apathy and your apathy, my cynicism and your cynicism, my despair and your despair. You see, the scene on the mountaintop is God's gracious pledge to us of what lies ahead, what lies in store for us. Remember what Paul writes to the church in Colossae. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. A preview of coming attractions indeed. It's a guarantee of the truthfulness of Jesus. That he means what he says when he calls us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. 
and when he warns us, if anyone is ashamed of me. And fourthly, the transfiguration is a wake-up call for sleepy and sound asleep disciples like us. Look back with me at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. My friends, the the transfiguration here is a wake-up call for you and me to wake up and see the glory of God, to see the beauty of Jesus. I'm afraid that I, along with I'm sure many others, go through life sleepwalking. Not awake to the glory of God, not awake to the compassion and the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God. We are practical atheists taking one step after the other. And this is calling us to wake up and see the glory. Are there any areas in your life right now that you're asleep? And the call of God is to wake up and see the glory of Jesus. I know some people say wake up and smell the coffee, right? And for some of us, I've learned that that is glorious to a degree. But wake up and see Jesus. So what do we have with the transfiguration? We've got a beautiful picture of biblical revelation. We've got a brief stop on the transforming journey of the apostles. We've got an ironclad guarantee of things to come. And it's a wake-up call for you and for me. We need to land this by reminding ourselves of the coming attraction the feature presentation. It's the coming day when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the coming day when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. It's the coming day when the holy city, the new Jerusalem will arrive. The city which has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamp. My friends, until that day, which will arrive one day, until that day, let us all walk by faith, not by sight, by keeping before us this preview of coming attractions as we look to Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for including this in Luke's gospel. Indeed, it can help us have certainty and be reassured 
of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Oh, Father, would you forgive us for sleeping when we should be awake? And Father, would you use whatever means of the gospel alarm clock, the gospel smelling salts, to wake us up individuals, as individuals, as families, and as this church to see the glory, to see your glory displayed in the face of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.